Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ian Shin. Today on our podcast, we have Uzma Qureshi speaking about her book, Redefining the Immigrant South, Indian and Pakistani Immigration to Houston During the Cold War, published in 2020 by the University of North Carolina Press. Uzma Qureshi is Associate Professor of History at Sam Houston State University where she teaches courses on late 19th and 20th century U.S. history, with a focus on immigration and ethnicity. Coincidentally, immediately after we finished the interview, Uzma and I learned that while we were recording, Joe Biden had announced that he had selected Senator Kamala Harris of California to be his running mate for the Democratic ticket. Some listeners may know that Kamala Harris's mother, who passed away in 2009, was Indian and that she came to the U.S. as a graduate student and received her Ph.D. from UC Berkeley in nutrition and endocrinology in 1963. I mention this because, as it turns out, the vice presidential nominee of the Democratic Party is descended from the same generation of South Asian immigrants that Uzma Qureshi writes about in Redefining the Immigrant South. In our conversation, we talk about how energy national students from India and Pakistan strategized their own advancement through U.S. public diplomacy programs in the early Cold War, and how they eventually found their way to first urban and then suburban Houston. We also talk about how Uzma uses oral history interviews to deconstruct a tricky racial positioning of South Asians in the American South in the second half of the 20th century. Uzma proposes several concepts like inter-ethnicity and brown flight that will be useful not only to scholars of Asian American history and Asian American studies, but also the history of the U.S. South, urban studies, immigration, and diplomatic history. I hope that you enjoy our conversation. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Asian American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ian Shin, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we're talking to Uzma Qureshi about her book, Redefining the Immigrant South. Indian and Pakistani Immigration to Houston During the Cold War. Uzma, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. I'm glad to be here. 
we're very glad to have you. Um, Uzma, I wonder if we could start, uh, as we usually do, by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Well, I am an associate professor of history at Sam Houston State University. I just got tenure. So this sounds a little um, unfamiliar to, to, to roll out those words, associate professor. Congratulations. Uh, That's such you. wonderful news. Thank you. I specialize in immigration history um, and race and ethnicity within the 20th century, the long 20th century. Wonderful. And, and may I ask uh, where you're from? And uh, I know you did your training at Rice. Uh, tell us a little bit about your, your path to where you are now. Well, I'm from Houston. Uh, so I guess it's unsurprising that that's what I work on, at least for my first project. Um, I, I went to school in Houston. Rice is in Houston, but I also did my undergrad uh, in Houston at the University of Houston. And then I was one of those fortunate few that was able to get an academic position within a stone's throw of my home city. So uh, Sam Houston is north of the city, and I'm one of the only people in our department who's actually from Houston, or perhaps the only person. So um, so that's, uh, that's sort of my background that way. I am also a non-traditional student, in, or I was, in that I, I came to graduate school much later than uh, the rest of my cohort. Um, I, I took some years off to, to raise my family and did that full time. And then I went back to, to school uh, after they were all in school and uh, worked my way through a master's and, and a PhD. And then and now here we are. That's wonderful. It really is, I think, as you said, unusual for somebody to be able to kind of, um, you know, have a land a position in the same place where they grew up, but also then went to um, undergrad and, and graduate school. Um, and I only recently learned how wonderful Houston is because I'm part of this writing group uh, of uh, queer Asian American studies junior uh, um, junior folks who gather once a year um, to do a writing retreat. And last year we picked Houston, um, and I had never been to Houston, and it was amazing. Um, we mostly spent time um, uh, in the Montrose, and I think. Um, another neighborhood near there. Um, and I felt bad because as I was reading the book, I was like, Oh, I wish I'd gone out to, you know, uh, uh, Sharpstown or Sugarland to, to, to all these, uh, amazing places that you write about in redefining the immigrant South. Well, I think it is a fantastic city. I'm a little biased. I'll give you that, but, uh, but nevertheless, uh, it's, there's a lot that the city offers and I think it's quite underrated. People sort of overlook it and, and, uh, slot it in with, and this is a revealing statement, but with the rest of the South and in doing so sort of dismiss it. But it's a city that's unusual, but at the same time is also representative of uh, of, tech, uh, of big cities uh, in the South as well as in the U.S. Well, and let's maybe dig into a little bit of the history that sets Houston apart and that, you know, as you said, makes it such a special place. Um, you know, as you said, the, the book is about Indian and Pakistani immigration to Houston, um, between 1960 and 1980, or, or, or at least immigrants um, uh, who arrived between 1960 and 1980, many of them, as you write, stay much longer than that. Um, I wonder if you can maybe uh, start by telling us how you how you came to write this book. Um, uh, I, I imagine that it was part of your um, uh, dissertation, uh, and, and I know you've also published articles um, uh, based on the book. Um, how did this project uh, come to you? It came to me as a as a graduate student, as a master's student, actually, and it was it, the simple answer is because the history of ordinary Asian Americans; uh, these histories are, are routinely overlooked, they're dismissed, and effectively they're silenced. So I began researching South Asian immigrants 
as a master's student in history at U of H because I couldn't find a single published work on that topic. Uh, South Asians in Houston or Texas or really even the South. And I had questions. I, I did find a couple of dissertations and just their, their very existence kind of became a guiding star for me because it proved to me that there was a path ahead. Uh, but those dissertations, one was in anthropology and one was, was specifically on gender. But, you know, when you're writing a history that doesn't have much, if any, historical precedent, you do wonder whether your work has any real value. Um, if it did, wouldn't someone have published it? Um, in the end, though, through my research, I found that the lives of everyday Asian immigrants illuminated historical narratives on the Cold War, on race in the post-Jim Crow South, on ethnic identity, on diaspora, and so much more. Um, so that's that's how I got started in the project. It's it's that I had had these questions, and in part, I guess you could some would say that it's autobiographical, and I'd, I'd admit that I'm a Pakistani American, I'm a Houstonian. But as a student of history, I had questions about how the South Asian community in Houston came to be. I wondered about what factors contributed to their migration to Houston. I wondered um, what did they do once they arrived and how did they settle? How, did, how were they received once they were settled? And how did they perceive the society around them? And then also how they were impacted by historical forces at play before and after migration. So in that way, it is autobiographical. At the same time, I wasn't alive in the 1960s, and I wasn't in Houston in the 1970s. And so this isn't my personal history. It's, it's a history of a large pan-ethnic immigrant group that predated me, but one that I'm tied to and that I have certain insights into. Right, right. I, I wonder, um, and this, this goes off of what you were saying about all the different um, bodies of literature that this book touches on, you know, the history of U.S. foreign relations, immigration, Asian American history, history of the American South, urban and suburban history. Um, but since this is the, the new books in Asian American studies podcast, I wonder if I could get you to reflect a little bit, you know, in relation to what you were saying earlier about the lack of scholarship on uh, Asians, uh, specifically South Asians in the U.S. South. And I know that's changed a bit. We've had, you know, a, a few more books, um, thinking, for example, of Stephanie Kinnerschitz's book mm-hmm. um, and, and, and uh, some edited volumes that have come out. Um, how do you think about uh, Asian American history or doing Asian American history or South Asian American history outside of the coasts, outside of, uh, you know, California and California and New York um, as the kind of major uh, epicenters of the field? I would say partly it's exhausting because you have to look up every single thing because there isn't a body of literature you can turn to to look up even the simplest fact but mostly it's exciting. I found that I actually enjoy um, working on projects that other people haven't really worked on. I like charting these new paths forward. Um, so that that is what keeps me going. And I, I find that I choose projects that don't have much work done in them. So, right. um, so yeah, this South Asian, there's, there's a, there are histories of South Asians, especially on the West coast, because that's where the preponderance of their population was, has been historically. Right. Um, through the, the early 1900s, and even after, there's a large population there, but but not so much in the South. And I think that's part of how we as a nation and as historians prefer to define the South. Um, Asian, immigration, Asian immigrants really don't factor into that. Um, Moon Ho-jung, his, his work on, uh, on Chinese immigrant labor, um, that is as far as you'll typically see 
the Asian immigrant sort of paradigm um, incorporated into Southern history, but it certainly doesn't uh, incorporate typically um, South Asians and not this late, not this, the recent sort of 20, late 20th century, early 21st century. Um, that work is, and there's a lot that's being done, not just on South Asians in the South, but on other non-white immigrant groups in the South. Um, that's a, a burgeoning field, one that's really, I, I would say, just blowing up right now. And there's a lot of new work that's come out in this. Right. I think that's one of the reasons why I was so, and I'm sure you probably saw this in, um, when it came out in May, too, that the Asian Americans PBS documentary series that premiered um, earlier in the, in the summer, um, you know, in the very first um, episode, they highlight Vivek Bald's work um, and, and, in fact, show him visiting, um, you know, families in New Orleans who are descendants uh, of uh, black and, and Indian um, or black women and Indian peddlers um, in, in New Orleans. And, and I think is one of the rare occasions, like you were saying, because I think the, the farthest that the field has done to incorporate some of the scholarship on Asians in the South um, is Moon Ho Jung's work on uh, Chinese laborers during the Reconstruction. It was really great to see a high-profile, you know, broadly accessible um, uh, piece of work like the Asian Americans documentary feature that story, and really feature it up front um, to remind people uh, the the existence of these communities. Um, you know, in the in the early 1900s. I totally agree. His uh, Vivek's work is just revelatory. And it's one that I've assigned both in my undergraduate classes and my graduate classes. And it's because students are just, they're just, they're, they're shocked by the fact that this is also a part of American history. It's just so far outside of what they can even begin to conceive of. Right. Right. I think on the other end, the, the, the other um, sort of pop culture reference that I was uh, thinking of as I read the book um, was, and, and you're going to have to forgive me, you're probably tired of, t- you know, getting questions about it, um, is Indian Matchmaker, because it opens on Houston. Um, uh, the Netflix uh, show that I think has made a little bit of a wave um, opens uh, on Houston with an um, uh, Indian American lawyer named Aparna. Um, and, you know, their references to their immigration to the city and talking about the number of degrees that her mother expected her to get. And so this emphasis on education and sort of middle class status all goes to your book. Um, so I was just thinking as I read the books, like, oh, this taps into so many, you know, kind of in the moment uh, conversations that people are having um, uh, in popular culture. I don't know if you've seen the show or, or um, I, I know it's it's caused a, a, a some some discussion um, among uh, South Asian and South Asian American um, uh, South Asian American scholars. So I've definitely followed some of the conversations that have emerged out of the show, but I generally don't watch reality TV. I like my TV to be completely escapist and have no bearing in reality as much as possible. So that's fair. That's <laughs> fair, especially when the world is already you know dramatic enough as it is. Um, why don't we start uh, by by uh, just um, well, as we talk about the book, um, thinking broadly about some of the major uh, parameters around which um, uh, you, you structured the book. And I, I want to sort of point to three things in particular, um, and, and there are other things that you mentioned in the intro, um, but, but three that struck me in particular were, first, your discussion of the terminology around South Asians, um, and in particular, um, the kind of, uh, and we'll, we'll talk more in depth about inter-ethnicity as a concept that you bring up later, um, you know, the fact that like Asian Americans, South Asian is also a politically constructed label. So I'd love to talk to you about that first. The second is about your oral history methodology, right? And and this is something that, you know, 
goes back to what we're talking about with Vivek Balt's work, that a lot of these histories, because they've been hidden or ignored or silenced, the, the methodologies that are involved in surfacing these histories uh, is different than uh, or, or uh, sometimes uh, harder to, to, to carry out. Um, and so I'd love to hear more about your oral history methodology and the interviews that you conducted. And then finally, just to sort of give um, our listeners a sense of how you think about um, the, the position of these Asians um, in the U.S. South, your analysis of race um, as the kind of third framing device, specifically your use of Claire Jean Kim's theory of racial triangulation. So perhaps we can um, use those three things to kind of um, uh, set up our discussion of the rest of the book, um, the terminology around South Asians, your oral history methodology, um, and um, the use of racial triangulation as your framework for understanding race um, in the U.S. South for South Asian Americans. Sure. So this term South Asian is both extremely convenient and problematic, as you would guess, uh, because it is very much a constructed label, um, emerged in, in the Cold War. And when I look at, at archival records, South Asia is one geographic space. So when I'm looking at the National Archives records, um, India and Pakistan are grouped together, lumped together uh, under the South Asia files. Um, and that, that pretty much represents why we use that term, how it came into being. It's problematic because on the ground, most South Asians don't use that term, hmm. um, whether they're in South Asia or in the diaspora. Um, it's not a lived term in that way, but it is in another way. And the, the term they have constructed to reflect what that term captures is desi, D-E-S-I, and I, I talk about that in the book. Um, that's the term that the second generation South Asian Americans have come up with. And it is that it, it, it is, it evokes that sort of shared geographic ancestry. And so in that way, South Asia is a little different or South Asian or they see is a little different from Asian, uh, which is a much larger category and merges these separate national and ethnic identities that may have absolutely no connection whatsoever historically. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas with a South Asian label or, or the, the Desi identity, um, they're, they're tapping into what was before partition, one geographic space, a bounded space, right? Mm-hmm. And that, that's why this particular um, ethnic identity is unique, um, South Asian or, or Desi, as I use it, I, I more frequently use in the book. Right. And I think you mentioned that the, um, the Indo-Pakistani is, is kind of the more preferred term, is that right? Um, uh, as a, in, in place of, of South Asian, as a lived term? You'll find it more often than you will South Asian, but usually even Indo-Pak, the place I find it most commonly is on storefront signs mm-hmm. where they're, they're um, selling Indo-Pak groceries or you'll find it under, you know, uh, Maharaja, an Indo-Pak restaurant. You'll find it used that way. Right, right. Um, so then uh, turning to the second um uh, point, which is about your oral history methodology. Um, you interviewed 38 Indian and Pakistani men and women who arrived in Houston between 1960 and 1980. Um, and you write that you used a snowball sample methodology. Can you just give us a sense of the the process of doing this research? Obviously, you also tap into lots of archives um, that we'll, we'll touch on later on, but um, the oral history is such a uh, an important feature of, of this book. Um, tell us a little bit about that that research process. How did you get in touch with these subjects? Um, you know, who 
who did they include, who did they exclude, etc. You know, it really was snowball and random in that, or in, in that I found one person who was here during the 1960s and asked them if they knew of anyone who's still in the Houston area um, who was also with them in the 1960s. And I'd get a list from them. Sometimes it was one person, sometimes it was you know three people. And then I'd contact those people. I'd call them on the phone. Um, and then I'd ask them if they'd be willing to do an interview. And after their interviews, for those who agreed, most did agree, actually. But for those who agreed, um, I would ask them the same thing at the end. Do you, do you know anyone um, who was with you during those years who I could also interview? And they'd give me contact information. And then, you know, I'd contact them and, and so on and so forth. So the advantage of that is I actually got quite a few people who are willing to share their stories with me and their histories with me. Um, the downside of that is that people who knew each other tended to be from the same or similar social circles. Mm -hmm. And so there are large groups that aren't accounted for in this book. One would be people who aren't upper caste. So um, everyone I interviewed is, is upper caste. Um, Mm -hmm. They don't say so. It's not spoken in so many terms. It's not something that's, that's openly discussed. Um, But, but there is that. Um, In addition, I don't include um, too many or any really, um, I should say too many, South Indians. And that's because most of the people I asked, this is who I came up with. These were the, the names that they would then give me. And after many, 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 many phone calls, the ones I could, I could get to agree um, to interviews. So there are sort of these absences. And in that way, this isn't totally representative. This history isn't totally representative, but I don't think any history really is, right? Um, there, there are always going to be gaps, but I, I put that up front uh, in in the introduction. So that's something that's missing. Um, the last thing that's missing, and, and this isn't because um, I didn't try. Actually, did try to locate Bangladeshis who were here in the 1960s, and I couldn't find them. As it turned out, there were, many of them came on a specific um, program, an agreement between um, the government of Bangladesh and um, and well, not the 60s. That would be the 70s, um, and specific universities in the U.S. But I wasn't able to find anyone until after the book was done. And then I found a couple of families who had been been here um, from, from the late 1960s. And I wish I could have included them, but I wasn't able to. Right. The, the research always continues to evolve, uh, I think, even after, after the, the writing is done. So uh, perhaps uh, there, there'll be um, some kind of coda or a second edition that you can incorporate some more of these um, interviews. Um, the, the last thing, you know, I'd mentioned was um, your uh, understanding of Asians' racial positioning in the United States. Um, and, and you have, um, you, you cite Claire Jean Kim, which some of our uh, listeners may be familiar with. But if not, I wonder if you can just say a little bit about why her theory of racial triangulation, triangulation is useful to you in thinking through South Asian uh, uh, immigrants um, and international students in Houston uh, in the second half of the 20th century. Sure. Um, let me circle back really quickly, though, to the oral history component. I think I pointed out what the gaps are through oral history, but what I didn't point out was why it's such a strength for a, a, a history such as this one. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because when I first started the research, I was told, as are students of history, that you go to the archives. And so I did. I went to the archives. And this history wasn't there. There was nothing that I could find on um, South Asian immigrants. 
And so then I looked at the university archives because I knew that some of them had been students. And I was able to find um, some, some really valuable information on, on students. I was able to find um, a list of students. I was able to find their kind of their experiences through the International Students Newsletter. Um, I was also able to find where they lived because the university kept records of where these students lived. So I could, I could pinpoint exactly where they, they lived when they moved to Houston as students. And this is how I was able to piece together um, um, the, the neighborhoods around the university uh, that they resided in initially. Um, mm-hmm. So I was able to get quite a bit there, but it was very limited. It wasn't enough to flesh out a complete narrative um, of, of South Asian immigration. And so I was support, with the support of the Center for Public History at U of H, I was able to start conducting oral history interviews. And that's where I was really able to flesh out those experiences that would have been and that are unavailable in traditional archives, um, which typically house uh, government records or um, many archives, most are, are reliant on um, donated, donated collections, so letters, journals, things like that, but they're entirely voluntary. And if South Asian immigrants haven't donated um, those kinds of records, then they don't exist um, in archives. Right. So oral history was absolutely crucial uh, to this project from, from its inception. And it, it began, it was born as a master's thesis. But from, from then um, onward, uh, as I've added to those oral histories, conducted more and more of them, um, I was able to, to, to really flesh that story out and, and be able to, um, to incorporate both the information I found in oral history with what I found in archives. That's so, wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Um, so so I, I think one of the ways in which this actually connects to the question I had about racial triangulation, triangulation is actually because I think in many ways the oral history findings um, – you know, are, are people's memories, right? Are people's sort of recollections. Um, and and what you have to do with those or what you do in the book with those is to set them up against the model minority myth, which many of our listeners will be familiar with. And you say specifically um, in, in the intro, I believe, that this narrative that you present in Redefining the Immigrant South refutes the model minority myth. And it shows rather that hierarchies of class and racial privilege were reinforced and maintained throughout the immigration process from South Asia to the United States in the mid to late 20th century. And I think that to me is so important, but also it strikes me as hard to do because, uh, you know, as a historian who mostly works with um, documents from the archives, um, uh, the I'm the unimaginative traditional kind of historian, um, it doesn't make me nervous to sort, sort of push back against some of these recollections and memories because all of my sources are generally dead. Right. But what's what's interesting to me is, you know, you have a refutation of the model minority myth and you're really sort of trying to put your subjects within this larger context, which may make them kind of uncomfortable, potentially, um, you know, because that might clash with their understanding of who they are, how they recollect, how they recollect their own experiences when they first moved here and the, the stories that they tell themselves right, about um, their, their, their own racial positioning. Uh, in Houston uh, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So I'm curious whether or not, you know, how you sort of negotiated that process, whether that ever came up, you know, as a, as an oral historian, um, you know, when you, when you think about the kind of intersection of oral history methodology and your own use of the theory of racial triangulation. 
so when I, when I interview um, immigrants, I try to keep conversations as sort of organic and natural as possible. I don't um, interject academic speak. I don't interject jargon into it. I certainly don't bring up the model minority myth. And for that matter, I don't even introduce the word race into it. Mm-hmm. I preferred instead to just have a conversation about um, about how they understood the trajectory of their lives and how they defined kind of the terms of their lives. What I found in going back and looking at these interviews and listening to them again is that race and class emerge time and time again um, without them perhaps intentionally um, having wanting that to be the case. That was the case. And so I did have what you're touching on actually uh, could be uncomfortable. I, I had a bit of a, a, a personal wrangling. I had to figure out um, how I how to reconcile um my interpretation of um, these interviews, of their words, with how they would m- might prefer to be represented, and right. that those two things um, might not be consistent. One of the thi- one of my solutions was to uh, to anonymize all the interviews so that they are all pseudonyms, because mm-hmm. almost everyone I, I interviewed, almost everyone is still alive, and mm-hmm. I realized that some of um, some of the things they've said in these interviews, even though I got permission uh, from every one of them and every transcript was sent back to them and interviewees um, read through every transcript and, and approved um, the transcript after the fact and also had the right to pull their transcript out um, of a collection or a project if they if they chose to do so. Um, but they, they gave their full permission. Um, regardless, I, I didn't want to embarrass anyone. That's not why I'm doing this. Um, and so one of my solutions was to was to make it anonymous. The other um, solution really was to not read as much into this as perhaps others would have, as perhaps anthropologists would have. I tried instead to use direct quotes as much as possible and not mm-hmm. assign meaning to what they were saying, but simply state that this is what they said. Got it. Got it. I think this is maybe a good time for us then to turn to the the chapters of the book. And I want to note for for listeners um, that the book begins with an introduction and then has a prologue that discusses a lot of the the history that um, uh, precedes the the era that the book is focused on. Um, And then before it ends with an epilogue, there are six chapters. Um, The first chapter is entitled U.S. Ideological Linkages with Indians and Pakistanis 1950s to the mid 1960s. So maybe that's, that's where we should start. Um, and, and, uh, we'll just go through each of the, the, the chapters in turn. Um, so the, the chapter here, um, really focuses on public diplomacy programs of the 1950s that kind of primed the pump for migration of South Asians to the United States, to Houston specifically after 1965, which, you know, is, is kind of a marker that I think a lot of Asian American historians now are familiar with, especially after the 50th anniversary um, uh, of the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act. Mm-hmm. Um, but you you push that uh, periodization a little bit earlier into the 1950s. So tell us a little bit about well, what is significant about uh, the 1950s and public diplomacy programs that lead to the kind of migration that we see after 1965? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. 
From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So the 1965 Act, like you said, is often um, and conveniently the starting point um, for how we understand modern immigration to the U.S., right? It, it's everything changed in 65. And, and it did in terms of the numbers. But what my research find, you said that I push it back to the 1950s. In fact, it's the sources that push it back, right? And it was when I went looking um, through documents in the National Archives that this became so apparent to me, so clear to me, that some of the things that that interviewees had mentioned or just kind of casually raised in, in the interviews, but not that they didn't fully explain, uh, perhaps because they couldn't, perhaps because um, it didn't seem significant to them. Um, those questions were answered in the archives. And by that, I mean that in the interviews, people mentioned that they would go to, that they went to libraries um, in India or in Pakistan. And it was in those libraries that they found information about American universities. Or they mentioned just in passing that there was an American visitor at their grade school um, and, and that she had on, um, the, the thing they remembered, they were very small children. They remembered that you know she had, uh, she wore hosiery, transparent hosiery, and they were so just engaged with this, with this hosiery. It was fascinating to them as, as little children and they hadn't seen that before. Um, but the lingering question to me was, why are there American visitors in Pakistani grade schools? And why are Indian college students finding out about American universities at these libraries? What are these libraries? Mm-hmm. Why, are, why are these libraries there? And why are, they carrying, why are they carrying this material specifically? Right. So right. those questions weren't answered um, in the interviews. Those questions I found the answers to in the archives. And what I found was that the U.S. Um, orchestrated, implemented, a global um, program of public diplomacy in, in key countries. And some of these countries received far more funding um, than other countries. India and Pakistan were in the, in the top five um, countries that received this level of funding. And, in, and because they were the, uh, among these target countries, um, the United States Information Agency, USIA, oversaw the establishment of libraries, information centers, and then programs that were carried out through these libraries and and information centers in both of those countries. These were massive programs of public diplomacy. They started in the late 40s. They were actually established during the the, the Second World War um, as as a wartime operation, but then they were expanded um, starting in in the late 40s and then especially during the 1950s. Uh, and so there was this revolving door of, of um, American lecturers, entertainers, athletes, um, experts, experts, so university professors, but this constant revol- this revolving door of people constantly visiting uh, these two countries and speaking to audiences in both of those countries. And the aim, the overarching aim, was to convince these audiences that the United States was uh, superior in terms of um, of its standing against communism and against the Soviet Union. Um, the background to that is that the Soviet Union was distributing anti-American propaganda in, in these countries. And so the U.S. felt the need to counteract that propaganda with its own, essentially its own propaganda war, right? Um, and so that's what's happening. So by the time 1965 rolls around, 
what has transpired is at least a decade and a half of very targeted, well-funded, extremely well-organized and comprehensive uh, public diplomacy. And And it centers on the middle classes of both of those countries, India and Pakistan, but also um, especially on institutes of higher education and every level of education in between. So that American colleges are heavily and, and, um, and very directly promoted. Um, for the first time in American history, we have, the United States has um, a slew of people that go out and effectively say, come to the United States to attend university. These are the best colleges in the world. And the hope is that these students will go back to their countries and then promote um, America and democracy. Right. I think the the sort of counterpoint to that, which I, I find really fascinating about the book is, you know, you write on page 62 that, that what the U.S. understood as, um, you know, or will hope for maybe as a growing preference for democracy may just as likely have been students strategizing on how attendance at U.S. sponsored events might work in their own favor, right? So there's this kind of, you know, in the other direction, people have obviously their own plans and dreams and goals, um, and whatever public diplomatic, you know, agenda the U.S. is trying to advance, you know, that that students in India and Pakistan are are um, using those programs to advance their own agendas. I'm curious if you can speak a little bit more because you you said earlier that you know you this was one part of the history that didn't really come out in the oral interviews. Um, so so this idea of students strategizing on how their attendance at these events and these programs and going to these reading rooms, reading rooms, how they might work in their, work in their own favor. Um, how, how do you, how do we, um, where do we see that in terms of uh, students potentially taking advantage of these public diplomacy programs for their own, you know, um, uh, advancement? I think this falls within the very clear category of immigrants agency and that they, they, their role in terms of how the U.S. envisioned them was very clearly envisioned. They, they, were, um, they were supposed to be these sort of cold warriors, right? Uh, right. Many of them came to the U.S. either as, as students at, at universities in, in the U.S., but also as visitors, um, as trainees, um, as leaders, uh, and part, part of the, the, the foreign leader program. And then they'd return, but they were supposed to be spokespeople in some way or another for the United States. But... And I think some of them did do that, but I think one thing that I found is that was constant is that they mainly are fi- trying to find a way that this helps them, um, and that's right. not a bad thing. It's not a judgment on them, um, but it is their own strategizing. They have a role to play here, and it's not just as tools or pawns um, of the U.S. government. They have their own kind of their their, their own way of of, of um, approaching these opportunities of making these opportunities work for them. Right, right. Yeah, I, I really um, found enlightening your, your discussion of, uh, I guess, the, the programs that grew out of the 1948 U.S. Information and Educational Exchange Act, the, the Smith-Mund Act, which I was not familiar with before, but that set up so many of these public diplomacy programs. Um, and this really, again, uh, sort of important um, dynamic between the agency of the students who are involved and uh, the diplomats who are who are. Um, trying to, to um, advance a certain understanding of the United States and the world. This maybe brings us to, to chapter two, which is entitled Getting Acquainted with the University and the City, 1960s to early 1970s. Um, 
And here we we uh, bring our focus, or you bring your focus uh, squarely on the University of Houston, uh, as well as other universities uh, within within the city of Houston. And you you write of the kind of racial calculations um, that South Asian international students make. Um, and and I'm going to quote you here again because of the, the the way that you pick up on this idea of strategizing. You write that they strategized to transcend the lowly forced status of Southern blackness by emphasizing their own educational credentials and class standing, while some trivialize or completely dismiss the impact of race in their lives. So two questions maybe for us to talk about. One, for, for those who are n- not familiar with, with Houston and, and the University of Houston, um, if you could just say a little bit about why... Uh, uh, South Asian uh, international students come to or choose the University of Houston? And then secondly, uh, if you could say a little bit about these racial calculations, what is being calculated um, by these students after they arrive in Houston in the 1960s? Sure. So I think the big thing that should be addressed before we even jump into the content of that chapter is that how it transitions, how it serves as that transitional point in the book where we move from the global to the very local. So the Mm -hmm. first chapter um, is is all about um, U.S. foreign policy in in South Asia and public diplomacy in South Asia. But the way I transition to the local and jump from that writ large uh, to what's going on at the University of Houston, like you say. um, So the way this transition is made is through the implications or the consequences of public diplomacy. So there's a robust body of literature on the history of U.S. public diplomacy. Um, one of one of the books that I, I think is just fantastic on the on the question of, of public diplomacy globally is Hearts, Minds, and Voices by Jason Parker, um, and his is just one of, of several books on the topic. Kenneth Osgood also has a great book on this, as do others. There's also a robust body of literature on uh, on immigration uh, to the to the U.S. after 1965, but I haven't found much that links the two. I haven't found anything really that links the consequences of public diplomacy as being immigration. Right. So that's what that's how I, I take this leap from um, where the book begins geographically in India and Pakistan to Houston. Um, and I jump into sort of the case study portion uh, of, of the book. And that's an important, um, I think, transition to clarify because it's also one of the most important scholarly interventions of the book. Mm-hmm. So to, to jump into, into the content um, of, of that chapter itself, it focuses on the university because that's where a sizable proportion, I would say, honestly, the majority of South Asian immigrants who came to Houston, it's where they started out um, in the late 1950s and in the, in, in the early 1960s. Most of them came as students. Um, I can't tell you how many people I interviewed and didn't interview um, who became leaders within the South Asian community, how many of them point their origins back to the University of Houston, saying I came there as uh, as an undergraduate or as a master's student or as a PhD student. And then over time, um, they became the leaders of the community. So it's important to to emphasize that the university as a site of identity um, formation is, is crucial, both ethnically, because that's also where they formed ethnic community, but also what I focus on in this chapter um, from a race and class perspective. So to understand how the university plays a role in their lives, you want to understand um, how the university is situated in this city, what it means. And at this point in the early 1960s, it's a segregated city. And so the University of Houston is an all-white university. 
um, African-American students were pointed down the road to Texas Southern University. They were not permitted entry at the University of Houston, but these students were, the international students were. And even after um, the university um, accepted its first African-American students, South Asians, it, it still remained a largely, um, largely a white university, especially at the graduate level. And many, if not most of these students were graduate students, especially the Indian students. Pakistanis less so, they tended to be more undergraduate over time. But, um, but early on in the 1960s, they tended to be grad students as well. And so, in other words, the people with whom these international students are socializing, um, whether they are university students or administrators, professors, um, they're, they're all middle class and white. And that can't be casually tossed aside. That actually has to be grappled with in some way. And it, it factors in because what we see is that from the very beginning, um, from the very beginning of, of migration, the people and the circles within which uh, these these immigrants move tended to be middle class, and so and so that's why I focus on the university and, and sort of dig in deep as to what it means to 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 uh, inhabit that space. Right, and the I think one of the most kind of striking examples of that that you give in this chapter is the the host family program, which literally brings people into the homes, uh, you know, uh, uh, with Thanksgiving dinners, for example. You know, it's a program that's organized, as you write, by the Institute for International Education who literally call the folks involved in this program Main Street Diplomats, which I just find, you know, it, it's so on the nose that they, they know mm-hmm. exactly what these folks are supposed to be doing and the role that they should play, um, you know, in, in sort of bolstering uh, a certain image of the United States. Um, no, I think that's the case for everything that, ha- that transpires in this book throughout the first chapter and the second chapter. It's just so clear and obvious once mm-hmm. you look at the archival records that it, it is a little shocking that they, they knew exactly whether it was the U.S. government and USIA and the State Department um, and its use, strategic use of students. They knew exactly what they were doing. There was no there's no hedging around in their confidential documents. Um, they, they map it out very clearly. These are our intentions and and this is how we're going to do this. Um, and the same thing takes place with, with the records regarding the host family. Although I would love to find more, um, some secondary sources on that. I have not found very much at all on the American host family uh, program. And so that might be something I poke around into over the next uh, few years, just to, to flesh that story out and perhaps uh, come up with an article or two on it. That would be really wonderful. I think just because, you know, I think there's, there's um, you know, the, the scholarship on kind of the the state of the American family or state of the American home during the Cold War and the way that, you know, this links to both migration and foreign policy and foreign relations would be a really interesting intervention I agree. Uh, on, that, on that body of scholarship. Um, if I can maybe move us along to, to chapter three um, and, and, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're kind of uh, moving along because there's, there's so much to the book to discuss. Um, but, but here in chapter three, which is entitled the formation of inter-ethnic community, 1960s to 1970s, you know, I, I can't start this discussion off without, of course, uh, pointing to the concept of inter-ethnicity that you introduce actually in the introduction, um, where you write that inter-ethnicity is the, or you define it as immigrants willingly, uh, sort of overlooking pre-migration national antagonisms, religious differences and language barriers in order to create community and diaspora. And so here, um, obviously, we're drawing on kind of this idea of pan-ethnicity or, or uh, 
you're, you're referencing it as well. But I wonder if you can maybe talk about chapter three uh, in terms of the possibilities, but also the limitations of inter-ethnicity among Indian and Pakistani students at the University of Houston um, during this period. Sure. So with inter-ethnicity, inter it is a form of pan-ethnicity, but the difference is, and I mentioned this early in the interview, that with pan-ethnicity, um, it's a much broader identity, and it doesn't necessarily rely on, on shared pasts or shared histories um, from, from, from ascending region. Whereas here, uh, with inter-ethnicity, it definitely relies on that, it, on these sort of pre-migration identities. They're resurrected, they're reconstructed, they're recast, and differences are, are overlooked to create this identity in diaspora. Um, are there limitations? Absolutely. And those limitations go right back to um, to uh, the sending countries, right? Although I think there's a difference now. We're now in 2020, and um, what's happened in, in India um, with regard to the rise of, of the BJP, um, with regard to the, a, a much more vocal kind of anti-Muslim sentiment that's that's been um, that's been evidenced through the passage of, of various policies, that wasn't the case while I was writing this book, right? That wasn't the case um, for for many years, and so that's that's I think what makes that in, what makes this book interesting is that we can. We can see what's happening today in this increased divisiveness, and that divisiveness spills over into the diaspora. So even here in the U.S., I think there is increased divisiveness. I'm not sure that I could actually go and, and conduct these interviews today. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know that, that people would be as warm and, and welcoming as they were um, even a decade ago. Um, yeah. But they were pretty warm and welcoming a decade ago then, and, and so I was able to conduct those interviews. What this, what the book shows is, is that these kinds of tensions aren't fixed. They're not, they're not natural. Um, they are constructed and that it doesn't have to be this way. We can look at the sixties and the seventies and, and, and look at a time when this identity served this sort of bridging purpose, right? It brought these communities uh, together. Although I don't want to, to read too much into that in very substantial, significant ways. Uh, they remained, I hate to use the word divided because um, I don't know. It, it sort of speaks to, um, and perhaps it's just too negative a connotation, but in very significant ways, they lived, um, they, they formed separate communities as well. I'll say that mm -hmm. they, they, they produced community independently of each other as well as with each other. So, so that um, religion, for example, is one of the ways that uh, proved a dividing line, although not, not always the case. There are more Muslims in India than there are in Pakistan in terms of just the sheer numbers, right? So that's mm -hmm. not a very clear dividing line, um, but it, it could be. And in, in some instances, it was um, another way that that um, those identities emerged differently is as the the community numbers increased, as there were more and more um, of them, um, their specific ethnic organizations um, increased activities that appealed specifically to Indians or Pakistanis. And mm -hmm. so this, this sort of smallness of the community size in the 1960s and 70s um, that that facilitated I guess a, a broader interethnic um, community identity that could then be set aside afterwards in the 80s and 90s, but it wasn't. In reality, what we see is that the next generation, the second and third, and now even the fourth generation, um, that they perform and enact this Desi identity, right. and they recognize that there is something um, shared there. Right, right. 
I think one really sort of striking illustration of the this kind of inter-ethnic um, negotiation, right, between uh, kind of solidarity, but also, uh, um, uh, I don't know if you want to call it independence, is the way that you write about how the Indian Students Association and the Pakistan Students Association kind of manage the calendar around the Independence Days, which are actually one day apart for Pakistan and India in, in mid-August. Um, but they agree to space the, the parties a week apart so that both communities could actually enjoy that occasion um, on, a, on a weekend uh, mm-hmm. rather than having to figure that out. I think that was just a really great illustration of, of you know, how people both collaborate, but also, you know, they're, they're collaborating even as they're trying to continue to celebrate their independence, uh, their, their own independence days, um, which, which is a really great illustration of that inter-ethnic um, collaboration. Um, and I, I also want to just sort of call out to, to folks who are interested in cultural history, your really wonderful discussion of music, literature, film screenings, um, food, you know, as sites where this inter-ethnic um, um, uh, this inter-ethnicity lives, um, the, the kind of morning shows, um, um, the, the Urdu literature group, um, and the JSTOR, um, not, not the article database, but literally, um, the JSTOR, um, uh, which was opened by, uh, Mina Dot in 1971. So I don't know if you want to touch on any of these kinds of, um, sites, um, you know, literature, uh, film screenings, music, to, to talk about how inter-ethnicity maybe played out, you know, in, in one of these um, uh, venues. Or through through most of these venues. I mean, it, it, on, sure. on the one hand, while there, there's a certain degree of pride that, that um, Indian immigrants had in being Indian, and by the same token that Pakistani immigrants had in being Pakistani, um, we can see through their organization and participation at these kinds of events and these these kinds of, of um, uh, stores, for example, J Store. So that that that's a store that that sold um, ethnic uh, groceries. Um, they're consuming the same goods, right? They're consuming the same cultural ethnic goods. Um, they can't exactly deny that there there is this um, there was this this familiarity. I think is the word that they use um, in the interviews when I ask the question. Uh, when I ask questions about their identity and about how they understand themselves relative uh, to other South Asians, um, that's that's what they say is there is this familiarity, and they'll often center on discussions of, of food or um, or film or clothing, um, even as they recognize that there were regional um, variations. Regardless, um, right. they they recognize that there's some kind of, of shared um, ethnic. I think the word they would use is heritage. Right, right. So, so in terms of the, how that shared ethnic heritage begins to evolve in a geographic sense, this maybe brings us to talking about chapters four, five, and six. And I, I um, don't want to give short shrift to, to any of them, but uh, I think maybe it makes sense to talk about this, uh, these three chapters um, in the context of the changing character of Houston in the 1970s, when it, as you say, uh, becomes more international in its outlook and also in, in terms of its demographics. But then also with this phenomenon called brown flight or this concept of brown flight that you set out um, to describe um, and why it's different. Uh, similar to white flight, which many um, historians of, of the suburbs will, will, will recognize, um, but why it's also distinctive and different than, than the concept of white flight. So I, I wonder if you can maybe narrate for us the process of 
the kind of changing residential patterns among South Asians. And, and I wish folks had the book in front of them because they would be able to see the amazing maps um, and GIS. Maybe if you can fold that too into your um, um, discussion, um, the, the maps in this book are astounding in how they kind of help us to understand the, the, the ways that uh, South Asians, as they settle in Houston and remain in Houston, move throughout the city, um, you know, sort of from the, the third ward uh, around the University of Houston to Sharpstown to Aleph and then to Sugarland by the 2000s. So I know this is a lot to pack into one question, but I wonder if you could maybe just tell us how the city is changing and how uh, residential patterns among South Asian uh, um, immigrants change along with it. Yeah, actually, I think that one way of answering this question is to continue the focus on ethnicity. And so while I map out in the first couple of chapters um, how these productions of ethnic identity play a substantial role in shaping kind of the lives of of South Asians in Houston, um, ethnic identity doesn't ever really go away. And in fact, the way that I distinguish brown flight from white flight is that component. It is ethnicity. So that where white flight is largely um, kind of convenient, I guess more conventionally uh, defined as flight um, historically from the the, the inner city, uh, inner cities of the U.S. into um, suburbs that do not have a large population of African-Americans. And this this took place over the course of the 60s, especially uh, in the U.S. Um, In Houston, it takes place a little bit later, and it coincides with... um, Uncoincidentally, it coincides with the desegregation of public schools here. So while it, Houston is, I guess, it, its growth takes place a little later, um, its major growth, a little later than, than some of the other cities that are more established, like Chicago or Detroit, for example. And so as its, its, its neighborhoods are um, developed, they're developed closer into the inner city, obviously, um, and over time, as the population expands and as neighborhoods diversify racially and ethnically, more affluent populations that were in those neighborhoods push out to other neighborhoods. And so that that moving line of the suburbs continually pushes outward and outward and outward. Houston is defined by sprawl. It is the classic sprawl city. It sprawls over thousands of miles. It is uh, square miles. It is, uh, it's unbelievably huge. And that's part of it. Part of it is that there, there are no natural uh, boundaries or uh, barriers around the city, nothing really keeping it hemmed in. There are no mountains, uh, no, no big rivers that would keep it uh, contained. There is a national forest to the north of it. And so Houston will never go past that national forest, but on all, and then there's, there's the coast Galveston down on the Southeast. Um, but between Houston and that Southeast coast, there's a lot of space. Um, and then to the west and the south, there's there is just space, and so it just has continually pushed out for um, for people who are fleeing the desegregation of public schools in the city. There were ample neighborhoods of of new homes, uh, new subdivisions um, built in the 70s, built in the 80s, continually built even today, um, and so. Houston's white population fell precipitously over the course of the 70s. Um, and the numbers of white residents in Houston just, just dropped. Um, and along with that, uh, as they moved out to suburbs, so did uh, Asian immigrants. But the difference is that for Asian immigrants, um, moving to specific suburbs in part was to escape 
desegregating schools, but was, was also in part to reinforce ethnic um, community. And so they were moving to where other um, co-ethnics resided. Um, Aleph is the, the first sort of large um, ethnic suburb, ethnoburb in that way. Um, there are something like 40% of all of the Asian residents of Aleph were Indian. Um, I don't have numbers on the Pakistanis in Aleph in the 1980s because the census doesn't provide uh, those numbers. Uh, but you can extrapolate from that. And also, I, I know from oral history interviews that many, many Pakistanis also resided in Aleph. And so it became the first ethnoburb where significant numbers of South Asians lived together. And this was, for them, um, yes, they were modeling those same patterns of white flight, but also ethnicity on the one hand, is a construction of, of ethnic identity. It is also a defense mechanism against the perception of external hostility. And so with this feeling that others weren't as welcoming to them, they clustered together residentially in these spaces um, that then, uh, that, and that's what I call brown flight. It's, it's on top of the sort of underlying white flight um, um, in addition to the imperatives of white flight, um, brown flight has this additional very important layer. It's sort of an additional uh, layer that intersects with what already exists. Right. So I, I guess the maybe, um, you know, to bring us closer to to um, concluding the book, um, you know, you alluded earlier to the way in which um school decisions, uh, schooling becomes a major issue for residential decisions where, where people decide to, to settle. You, you talk about education as cultural capital in two ways, both as a vehicle for, for upward social mobility, but also as a claim, an existing claim to, to high status. Um, and one of the things that I, I think um, I was trying to struggle with in reading the book is, um, you know, when you write that brown flight and suburbanization through brown flight is as much about forging ethnic community and social marginalization as it is about reinforcing racial and class norms, right? One of the things that then brings me to, to ask is, you know, what can we do to challenge some of the more problematic narratives that take root through brown flight, right? That, that reinforce racial and class norms. How do we help uh, Asian American communities construct counter narratives that, that, uh, you know, get at the, the sort of structural inequality, which many of your subjects actually seem to indicate an understanding of, right, in terms of, you know, some of them, you write, talk about why, you know, um, African American and Latino uh, parents maybe don't have as much time to, to uh, 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 focus on their, their children's education, or their understanding of why that is, it hints at the fact that they have some sense of that structural inequality, but yet, you know, feel that they they need to build these communities um, that that help to insulate them from uh, a, a society that otherwise um, uh, doesn't like them or doesn't want them around. So it's a really tricky to me. It's a really tricky kind of needle to thread. Right? Is you know, if people are trying to forge ethnic community and combat social marginalization, which you you certainly want to give them the agency to do. But they also are doing it by reinforcing racial and class norms. How do we how do we tackle that? As and this is, gets us out of the realm of Asian American history and maybe more into the realm of Asian American you know activism. How do we how do we counter those narratives? So, like you said, it takes us out of the realm of history. But what I hope is that 
this book and then other works like it. There are so many that, that touch on the question of, of race and ethnicity in Asian American communities and the complexities of it. So Asian Americans are both racialized, but they also um, they also racialize others. Right. And right. so they're, they're, they're complicit in this. Um, I think the first step is having these conversations. Um, these conversations haven't happened in most families. Um, it's an uncomfortable subject to broach. Um, certainly much of what I've written here is uncomfortable for people uh, to read. doesn't yeah. have to be, but, but it, it certainly has the potential to be. Um, yeah. So that would be, be the first step. But I don't think conversations are ever, ever enough. It's just a starting point. Um, I, I'm in the camp that believes in order to bring about a change in perceptions, there needs to be a change in policies first. And then the change in perceptions will follow. Um, just having discussions and conversations isn't enough. We need to, as activists, to actually um, bring about change in policy, and then, um, and then uh, we'll we'll find the, the I think the change that we're looking for in terms of how how people are, are treated and, and perceived. Well, I think that's a really great note to end on for us to to think about how this is really a book that's appropriate to read in the age of Black Lives Matter, right? And and to read alongside some of the ongoing activism around, for example, I'm thinking of the campaign to overturn Prop 209 in California um, and, uh, you know, working towards uh, affirmative action. Um, I won't read any, I, don't, I won't read my own beliefs and, and agenda onto, onto your work, uh, but to me, it does seem like a very timely book, um, you know, that, that also sheds light, as we've talked about, on uh, everything from U.S. Uh, public diplomacy in the 1950s um, to, you know, Houston as a sunbelt Southern and American city um, to the, the really amazing oral histories that you've conducted with uh, Indian and Pakistani uh, uh, students who come to the United States during the Cold War. Um, before we end, um, I wonder if, uh, Uzma, we can ask you to share with us uh, what you're working on next, um, you know, we, we can celebrate your, um, your, your promotion to associate professor and your tenure, uh, but everybody knows this. there's always the next project around the corner. So I, I'm curious what you're working on now. I've got my, my hands in a couple of pots. I think probably most of us do. One is the project you had mentioned, um, and that is on the understanding of and, and the, the strategic use of Indian independence in 1947. Um, among the Indian diaspora. So if we take that event and the years leading up to it and discourses around um, gaining independence, that had resonance not just for those in India, obviously, but also for those who weren't in India, but who identified with India as a homeland. Um, I specifically look at uh, Caribbean communities, Indo-Caribbean communities in Trinidad, in Jamaica, um, and I, I plan to expand that to, to Guyana, but I'm also hoping to find um, something in the U.S. So there was there was an Indian community here as well, and they were active. Um, I haven't found the source base for it yet, but I'm, that's that's my next step. Um, what I did, what I have found, is that these communities in the the sort of the modern Atlantic world diaspora, if I dare call it that, um, they were in conversation with each other. Um, so so Indian Indians. And those of Indian descent in the UK, in the US, um, and in the Caribbean were, were in conversation. They were writing to each other and um, and sharing lecturers, uh, sending guest speakers. Um, they were regarded by um, the government of India um, as sort of a, a single unit, and so the government of India would send uh, would would send letters to these the same letter uh, to all of these communities um, as as if 
and refer to them as sort of our Indian brethren, right? Um, so that's one of the projects I'm looking at, um, I'm working on. The other project that I'm working on is uh, a history of racial resistance in the U.S. among um, communities of color. So I, I'd like to, to look at um, forms of resistance that are obvious, so collective action, um, uh, court, the court system, fighting through the court system to gain um, racial equality, but also things that are less obvious, such as the formation of ethnic identity. I think that goes that that actually is also a form of resistance. Um, so, so that's the other project I'm working on. And, and then, as an offshoot from the, this book, Redefining the Immigrant South, I have a couple of articles that I'm working on on public diplomacy. Fabulous. Well, thanks for taking the time today to share with us uh, your thoughts and most importantly for, for this really wonderful book that you uh, have written. Um, and congratulations again on its publication. And, you know, we appreciate you sharing your, your ideas with us today. Thanks so much for the opportunity. And I enjoyed it. That was my conversation with Uzma Qureshi, author of Redefining the Immigrant South, Indian and Pakistani Immigration to Houston During the Cold War published in 2020 by the University of North Carolina Press. My name is Ian Shin, and this is New Books in Asian American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.